If you'll open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I was thinking some this week about Wright Hall on the campus of Troy University in the little town of Troy, Alabama, and thinking about a shared experience that Shay and I had, although it was in different years, in each of our freshman years, we worked at the Writing Center, writing, not riding, Writing Center at Troy University, um, being tutors for English grammar, help with writing papers, things like that. And uh, one of the things that we also had the responsibility of doing was helping students who were enrolled in English 090 and 091 which I didn't even know was a thing before getting there. I always thought that you started your college classes in 101. Um, They have these 090 and 091 classes to help students who maybe don't have the foundation all squared away uh, to get them ready for the 101s. And so we had a lot of students uh, that we were helping, uh, maybe who were international students for whom English wasn't their first language. There may have been a few athletes there. But somewhere along the line, they'd missed some of the foundational pieces. And so what we did as tutors was try to help get them up to speed and get ready for the basics, for that entry-level 101. I was thinking about that this week while studying because we talk a lot at this church about being gospel-centered in the teaching and the leadership where we are so keenly and purposefully focused on the person and work of Jesus. Of seeing Him at the apex of all of Scripture. Of seeing His righteous and sinless life. And His sacrificial death as our substitute. Of His resurrection and His ascent of His rule and His reign. And we're committed to keeping that at the very center of everything that we do. We want to be a gospel-centered church. And so that's the 101, if you will. But there are also some foundational concepts along the way that help prepare us for that 101 level of gospel-centeredness. And we're going to see one of those today very clearly in this passage. And that's glory. Glory is one of these foundational things that we've got to get if we're then going to get the 101 of being gospel-centered. And there there are others. uh, Holiness, grace, mercy, the justice of God. Lots of these things. And so if we talk a lot about being gospel-centered, but we're not squared away on some of these foundational things, ideas, I'm afraid that our talk of being gospel-centered can be a little hollow at times and might not be as strong as it could be. And I'll make a confession to you, and it's a fear that I have, is that sometimes we just assume these foundational things. Yeah, we've got that. Yeah, we're good on that. We don't need to go over that again when we ought to be explicitly teaching these things 
more and assuming them less. And so today we've got glory, and it is so foundational. And you, you read through the Scriptures, you just see it everywhere. You, you see it in Psalm 19, how the heavens declare the glory of God. You see it in Romans 3.23, how as sinners we have fallen short. Specifically of what? Of the glory of God. You see it in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Everything that we do is to be for this glory, and certainly in this Christmas season, we see it in the Incarnation so very clearly that, that the writer to the Hebrews captured so well in these first three verses of that book long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And so as we approach this morning what is a very familiar passage, there were lots of allusions to this passage in the songs that we just sang. As we approach this passage this morning, this morning, I want us to do so with a lens looking for and looking at and looking to the glory of God. And as we do that, we'll see how it supports and it, and it undergirds and it is part of a very solid foundation for being indeed gospel-centered. So I want to do something a little different. I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Practically because you've been sitting for so long. The choir members are all saying, well, wait a minute. <laughs> but more importantly than just to stretch your legs, it's to demonstrate physically what I hope we would demonstrate with our hearts as well, that we are standing under the, under the submission of God's Word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste 
and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. May God add His blessing to the reading and the teaching of His inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and holy Word. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we need help. You know that. And so we confess that need to You. Knowing that You are delighted to answer that prayer. Knowing that You, Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired these very words and carried along the men and women who wrote them down, we look to You for Your illumining light. We ask that You do Your work in us so that You can do Your work through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I want us to work our way through this passage this morning. And I've given you six points in your outline on how this glory is revealed and what happens as it is revealed. The first point you have there is that glory is revealed in providence. Certainly we see God's glory revealed in these first few verses as He sovereignly controls all things. So a decree goes out for this registration, for this census. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar. Sounds important, right? It's a power play on the part of Caesar. right? Everything Caesar does is, is a power play solidifying power, establishing power, concentrating power, ensuring that the appearances of power are kept up. And I love here that Caesar's power play gets played, basically. He has no idea that what he's doing is setting off this chain of events that will forever mark the course of human history. This show of earthly power, <laughs> I use that term loosely, is sovereignly ordained by God to accomplish His purposes and to fulfill this prophecy that we also sang about in Micah chapter 5. That the Messiah had to come from this little seemingly insignificant town of Bethlehem. You might say, now wait a a minute, how is that going to happen? Because Mary's living in Nazareth, but Messiah's supposed to be born in Bethlehem of all places. In those days, a decree went out. See, Caesar thought it was his decree. We've been working our way slowly through some of the questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I'm sure you all remember back in March, 
when we got to question number seven, which has become over time one of my favorite questions. But the question number seven in the Shorter Catechism is, what are the decrees of God? And I'm sure you all diligently memorized the answer and can still remember it from March. But the decrees of God are His eternal purpose, whereby for His own glory, He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. For His own glory, He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. In those days, a decree went out. And it just so happened that they had to go to Bethlehem. And it just so happened that it was this week that they had to go, and not the week before, and not the week after, because verse 6, while they were there, amazingly enough, the time came for her to give birth. God's glory is revealed in His providence. He may not always act and move on our timetable, but He most certainly acts and moves in a way that will bring Him great glory. And so we see His glory clearly revealed in His providential and His sovereign control over all things. That's the first point on your outline. God's glory is also revealed paradoxically. So if you were God and you wanted to reveal your glory, how would you go about doing it? Maybe that's a little too abstract. Let me give you something easier. Pretend like you're Caesar. What would Caesar do? If Caesar wanted to reveal his glory, strike up the band, get out the pomp and the circumstance. Ticker tape parades, if there was such a thing. And accent it all and highlight it all with the smell of manure. No way. That's not what you would do. Verse 7. She gave birth and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. That's not so unusual. And laid him in a manger. See, this humiliation is, is where we get tripped up. Because it just seems so incompatible with glory. But it's not. You see, if Caesar were trying to reveal his glory, he's got something to prove. And a deep-seated fear that it might not work. All right, there's a lot of insecurity that comes with being Caesar. What if they don't think I'm glorious? What if they don't think I'm pretty? The Almighty has nothing to prove. Nothing whatsoever. 
And because he's got nothing to prove, he's able to set aside for a time glory and splendor and everything that is so rightfully his and make himself nothing in the incarnation. And so it's paradoxical how he reveals glory. We would have never done it this way. Caesar certainly wouldn't have done it this way. So it's paradoxical how he reveals it, but also to whom he reveals it is a bit of a, of a, of a paradox. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds. Not exactly the cream of the crop of society or of culture. Not who you would expect to receive a glorious revelation and a visit from this angel. One of the things I read this week said that in that day, shepherds were one tiny step above lepers. It's kind of the only people they could look down on. For some reason, we've got this romanticized view of shepherds. Maybe it's from our nativity sets or Christmas pageants. Right, but we see these long flowing robes and these staffs and they just seem kind of stately. And that's just not really accurate <laughs> historically. These were some pretty unsavory characters. And they are not the recipients of this revelation that you would expect. Right. We would have expected, and certainly the religious leaders would have expected, that they would have been the ones to receive such a glorious revelation. Those who thought they had it all together thought they were deserving of such a revelation. But here's the thing about glory. is It levels the playing field. Because when you consider glory, specifically the glory of God, there's one in the column of glorious. And everyone else is in the column of not glorious. God's glory is revealed paradoxically, and to whom it is revealed is paradoxical as well. Third point on your outline. The revealing of glory brings great fear. Verse 9, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. They weren't just a little bit afraid. They were filled with fear. See, encountering God is is a highly disruptive thing. You don't come into contact with God and His presence and His glory and say, eh. You might encounter religion and say, eh. You might have in front of you a set of moral expectations or ethical standards and say, eh. 
But when the glory of the Lord was revealed to these shepherds, they were filled with fear. And so this fear is actually a really good indicator of whether we've encountered the living God of the Scriptures or if maybe we've just gotten a little dose of religion. Because if you can't relate to this idea of fear and God working together, if that for you is a what? then you've likely not encountered him. And so why fear? Why have all the emotions? Why is it fear? Why does glory shining around them lead them to fear? It's because in the white hot light of God's glory, they and we see ourselves as we really are. We see with great certainty those two columns. One is glory and one is not glory. And we know where we land. We see that we are in fact sinners who have fallen short of glory. And and so we should be sore afraid to use the older translation. Very fortunately, this fourth point is tied closely to and woven in with this third point. On the heels of being filled with great fear comes verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not. Fear not. Why? For, for a very real, objective, quantitative reason. Fear not, for behold. Good news. Gospel. Grace. So on one side of the, of the glory coin, we've got this terrible realization of of who we are and of our falling shortness. But on the other side of this glory coin is a Savior. Is the way that God has prepared to deal with the fact that we've fallen short. And so verse 11, unto you is born this day In the city of David, a Savior. Fear not, a Savior is born. And here's what I hope you're getting here. If we don't get glory as the 090, as the foundation, then we're not going to get our need for a Savior. There's not going to be a need to be gospel-centered in the 101 if we haven't grasped glory at its foundational level. Because if we get glory, we get that we have a desperate need. 
we'll understand what's being offered to us by means of a Savior. We'll see, well, yeah, I need to be saved. By this one who lived a righteous and a sinless life and who didn't fall short of glory in any way. And died the death that our falling short of glory deserved. See, once we get glory, we get our need. And once we get our need, we run to the cross to embrace Christ as He's freely offered in the Gospel. Number, number five, when glory is revealed, it elicits a response. And here's where I was cheating a little bit because it's really three responses. And If I told you you had an eight-point outline, you would have really freaked out. But here's the first response that glory revealed elicits in verses 13 and 14. And it's a response back to God. When glory is revealed, we respond back to God. And that's what's happening here. Suddenly, there was with the angel, as if an angel wasn't enough, right? Suddenly, with the angel, a multitude. It's almost like God's glory has this snowball effect. And once it gets going, look out. There's a worthiness attached to this glory. And this multitude just can't help but to join in and to cry out. Glory to God in the highest. They're they're ascribing. Have you seen that that command in Scripture uh, over and over? Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. What are we doing when we're ascribing? We're telling it back to Him. We're we're telling God how great He is. He knows already. He doesn't need us to do it, but we need to do it. He's worthy and we need to tell it back to Him. He's so glorious. When glory has been revealed, when we've encountered glory, that's a very natural response. It's a response where we would feel like we might burst if we don't get it out. So this first response is back to God. The second response that that glory elicits when it is revealed, we see through 15 through 17. Right? The shepherds have received this, and now verse 17, they made known the saying. They had to make known what has been revealed to them. The angel didn't command them to. It just, it happens. They had to, right? And you know what this feels like. We know what this feels like on a smaller scale, right? When, when you've encountered something of great beauty, art, music, uh, when you have uh, traveled somewhere amazing and taken in the sight, You've, you've tasted really great food or really great wine. Or maybe you streamed something really cool on Netflix or you got a really good 
deal at TJ Maxx, right? You, you tell somebody, right? You know this. You tell somebody. You can't wait to tell people very often. So it was with these shepherds. And, and see, here's another little way to tell what it is that you've been dealing with, what it is that you've encountered, what it is that this Christianity thing is to you. Because if it's just some set of principles that you try to live by, eh, that's not going to burn inside of me trying to find a way out. If for me Christianity is running around trying to make sure that my good outweighs my bad, I'm not going to beat down anybody's door to tell them about that. But if what you've experienced and encountered is glory, Glory that terrifies you and brings you the greatest comfort you've ever known. That, that's something that's going to feel like it's bursting if it doesn't get out. The third response that glory elicits when it's revealed is internal. Look at verses 18 and 19. And apparently, just from the start of verse 18, and all who heard it. So the shepherds must have been telling more than just Mary and Joseph. Because all who heard it wondered. Christmas time, there's a lot of wonder going on. It's a great season. Right? It's a time for family to be together. Uh, it's a time uh, to celebrate, to give gifts. There's just lots of good, warm, fuzzy going on. There's a lot of wonder. It's a cute little baby lying in a manger. It's heartwarming. But wonder is not faith. Wonder is not belief. And so it's important, especially at Christmas time, when there's a lot of wonder, and it's good. But it's especially important to distinguish between wonder and something else. And there clearly is something else we see from how verse 19 is introduced. Right? Everybody who heard it wondered, but Mary. Her response was different in some way. Her response is characterized by two different words treasuring and pondering. 
And so treasuring connotes this sort of emotional vibe, this, this heart vibe of, of, of there's some value attached here. There, there's some worth here. There's a treasure that needs to be kept, guarded, tre- treasured. That's what it means. But it's not just an emotional response, although it is that. It's not less than that. It's more. The mind is engaged too because she's treasuring and she's pondering. And so pondering really has a lot to do, I guess the best way to describe it is, is making the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Connecting all these dots, right? Because Mary's already been given some dots, right? Gabriel visited her and gave her some dots, gave her some puzzle pieces, right? And now the shepherds have come along and they're giving her more dots, more pieces of this puzzle, trying to figure out who is this baby that I've just given birth to? And what's he going to do? And what does this all mean? And so she heard what the shepherds told her about glory, And she's treasuring it and she's pondering it. And here's the strangely comforting thing to me. Certainly Mary is on the right track. She's treasuring, she's pondering. And yet, she's still very much a work in progress. She does not have it all together at this point. Because she, along with her other sons, Jesus' brothers, are going to go on to oppose Jesus' ministry. They're going to think he's crazy. And leave it to dark and twisted me to find comfort in that, but she's a work in progress. Mary herself... Treasuring, pondering, trying to make it all fit together. It's going to take a while. She's going to get there. But she's a work in progress, and so I'm, I'm comforted by that. So where does this leave us? What should we do after we've encountered glory? What ought to be different Right? We've had this great fear. We've had this unimaginable comfort come to allay that fear. So what next? Well, I suggest we take a, a cue from our shepherds here. And this is our sixth point. When glory is revealed, it transforms the ordinary. What became of these shepherds after this encounter? Verse 20 tells us, They returned. They returned from whence they came. Back to the fields, back to the sheep. They returned. They didn't quit their day jobs. It's as if Everything stayed the same and everything is absolutely different. 
They've had this unbelievable experience. They've encountered glory. And they return. Now, as they return, they're praising and glorifying, right? Things are not exactly the same. But they return. And I think that's where some of us get tripped up. When we have encountered glory and we think, oh, and, we, and, and we're trying to explain it, and now what do we do? And we think that it's got to be this radical something other. It might just be we return and we praise and we glorify as we return. So I think in Jesus' calling of the disciples, um, think about Matthew 4. He says, come follow me and I will make you fishers. Right? How terribly anticlimactic is that for a bunch of fishermen? <laughs> come follow me and I will make you fishermen. And they're like, but... And so our little Christian subculture wants to turn it into some great metaphor and we have all these little fish hook pins that we wear on our lapels now because you know we're using the bait of the gospel to try to capture people and reel the fish in for you know I think the big thing there is they were being who God had already made them to be in his purposes and in his plan And so the, the biggest thing God's kingdom needs is school teachers who've encountered glory. And stay-at-home moms who have encountered glory. And engineers who have encountered glory. And system administrators, whatever that is, who have encountered glory. And so that's my prayer for all of us this morning, especially in this Advent season, that we would encounter glory. That we would not just wonder, but that we would treasure, and that we would ponder, and that we would return. Let's pray together.